Well, we have jumped into a sermon series on idols of the heart. That's really about how God designed us to experience significant and lasting change. Change. But even as I use that word change, I have to be honest. I've been in the church my whole life. I've been a pastor 37 years. I believe this is one of the dirty little secrets in the Christian camp. That people feel, but they don't want to say it out loud. Most believers do not really know how to change. Oh, they know they should. And they even want to now. There's a new want to. There's a new desire. God has given you a new desire to please him, to follow Jesus, to obey God's word. But when they try, and they just try really hard to obey this verse, to do this thing or stop doing that thing, they don't see much fruit. And so after a while, they get discouraged. They lose heart. And they even quit saying things like, Oh, well, I guess that's just who I, say it with me, am. That's just who I am. That's who I am. But what people do not realize, when you're talking about change, when you introduce the idea that there could be significant and lasting change, that only happens on a heart level. And the Bible does talk about the heart relentlessly, And so when you begin to really talk about change and when you're really frustrated trying to change, almost always the answer as to why you're so frustrated and you're ready to give up up, is you've not yet recognized the sin beneath the sin. What is it that's fueling this? Why do you do what you do? Not just what do you do. I just do this. I say this. I want this. Why? And they also don't recognize the worship. You realize we're worshipers? Created in the image of God, we build our worlds around stuff. The worship that's fueling the war between you and so many other people and your circumstances. There's a war, and you're aware of that. There's a heart that is worshiping something other than the one true living God. You haven't gotten below the surface. When you begin to go after root sins, These root sins are feeding any number of fruit sins, but the average Christian spends their life whacking away at fruit sins with a Bible verse in hand. Don't be angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Here we go. And after a while, like, I'm still angry, and I memorized a verse. This is not working, quote, I guess I'm just an angry man. I'm just a worrisome, fretful woman. It's just part of my personality. It's in my DNA. There's no hope for me until the new heaven, new earth. And so I want to dig into it some more today. I want us to take a closer look at why we sin, the way we sin, with whom we sin, for how long we sin, and most importantly, why is it so hard to stop? In almost almost every instance, when you're finding it almost impossible or so difficult to stop, it's because you're not fighting smart. When you, when you ignore the heart, when you're unaware of your heart, you don't fight smart. You're fighting on the wrong level and you get exhausted and discouraged and you buy the lie that our enemy would love to tell you and your flesh screams to you, you can't change this. This is who you are. So let's talk about it some more. Why should you take time and why should I take time to ask God, oh God, help me to identify potential idols in my heart. 
in my own life. Why is this a big deal? Number one, idolatry is false worship. So it flies in the very face of God. If you're still guilty of thinking, all right, I can hardly wait till this series is over because this is peripheral. This is a side issue. Maybe one day, someday I'll get after that. Oh, you guys, idolatry is basically false worship. So it flies in the face of God. You see, idolatry, if you think about it, if you know your Bible at all, idolatry violates the most basic and first of all commands. When God said to us in Exodus chapter 20, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. But idolatry makes a little G God out of all kinds of things in this world. Jesus himself, when the crowd got confused and even the religious leaders in that day were confused, they had added like 650 ancillary commands to the commands we actually have in the Bible. It was a very confusing day. And someone in the crowd said, tell us what, boil it down. What is the great command? What should we be focused on? Jesus said, okay, Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and great commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what I want you to grasp. Do you realize idolatry makes you guilty of violating both great commands? When you're guilty of idolatry, it violates and it wrecks your vertical relationship with God and your horizontal relationship with other people because you turn from God as your first love, deepest satisfaction. And watch this, you stop loving other people and you start using other people to help you get what you've decided you're going to build your world around. You realize love by its very definition, our culture's got a different, you know, country music and our whole culture has a very different definition of love, but a biblical definition, ready? Love is giving to the needs of another with their best interest in mind, expecting how much in return? Say it louder. Nothing. You're like, well, that's really radical. Mm -hmm. That's what God is for. That's what the gospel is for. That's why we're supposed to look radical when you truly love other people, but when idolatry is at play, you begin to use people as a means to an end. You got to help me get what I want and what I'm chasing after. And so let's stop and review our definition of idolatry again, or an idol. I told you I don't have a Bible verse for this, but when you look at all of Scripture from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, I think it's a fair definition based on the scope and sweep of Scripture. Let's say it together. An idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts and minds and affections more than God. Say it again. An idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts and minds and affections more than God. Just Buffalo Bill fans. No, just kidding. That should be nobody. Oh, anything, anyone. If it begins to capture your heart and mind and affection more than God. 
So you listen to me. Because you were created in the image of God, every single human being, doesn't happen to you just when you put your trust in Christ. From birth, you're created in the image of God. Since we're created in the image of God, you were made to live for the glory of God and to build your world around God. You'll never be satisfied doing something different. You'll never have real peace and real joy and a real sense of purpose. But idols, idols have us trying to live on all kinds of God substitutes in this world. Exchanging the glory of a one true living God for something in this created world. Whether it's children. Are children a good gift? Did God ever design you to build your whole world around the children and put all your hopes in that and let that be your identity? Nope, 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 nope. So it's even good things, right? So this is not just, I need to be aware of wicked things. I shouldn't attach myself to that. Oh, this is what's so difficult, and this is why we do it so often. When good things become a God thing, it's now a bad thing for you and everyone around you. Chaos, confusion, dissatisfaction. And it affects your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. And get this, not just sometimes, always, whenever you do that, you've exchanged the one true living God and substitute it with something else. This is what I live for. Most people have enough sense to never say it. But every now and then in a heated moment, they actually say it. I'll be with someone and I'm trying to help them. And it just comes out. They'll say, you don't understand, Pastor Brad. But I live for those grandkids. I've heard it more than once. Uh Uh-oh. Those, you don't understand, Pastor Brett, those children are my life, world. You don't understand that business, I built it, that is my, see, Jesus said in Matthew 15, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth would what? Speak. Usually it takes enough heat to push it up In peaceful, happy times, when it's going the way you want it to go, nobody knows, including you. But when there's heat, up comes the heart, and it comes out of the mouth. Uh Uh-oh. But they don't realize what they're saying. It's like, oh, isn't that a good thing? Oh, isn't that a good thing that I live for my kids? No, it's not. Isn't it a good thing that those grandkids are my world? I would do anything for them. No, it's not. Anytime you shift or drift somewhere else, Expect very poor results. You will always be disappointed, disillusioned, and begin making demands on other people that they were never created to bear. You'll, have, you'll end up crushing people and you'll be frustrated. They'll be frustrated. It's offensive to God and destructive to you and everyone around you. Offensive to God and destructive to you and everyone around you. And so I said it last week, but it's still true, you guys. We will just be scratching the surface on this. Just five messages. This is message number two. There's so much more that could be said and should be said. So let me encourage you to do something. Here's a novel idea. Did you realize you can read your Bible the rest of the week on your own without me, with the Holy Spirit? Oh, mic drop. I would love for you to keep working on this in between the Sunday messages. This is not the magic hour. When you really want change and you really say, God, do something in me, maybe this never happened before. Let me help you. I'll do all I can in these Sunday messages. And then watch this. If you would consider studying and thinking and praying and digging 
and meeting with the Lord privately, you have his Holy Spirit. You have the word of God. Oh, watch what might happen. So you can download it right there on the website, this worksheet that I created, trifold worksheet, to identify specific idols in your life, to say, God, what's going on in my heart? Where have I drifted? Where have I shifted? Consider working through it and saying, God, show me my heart. If you own the copy, a copy of Gospel Trees and pull it off the shelf and blow the dust off of it. I can't tell you how many people say, yeah, I have the book. I just never read it. That doesn't, that doesn't change your life. Try reading it instead of using it as a coaster. It's got a circle mark on it. Get your coffee cup off it. Read it. You say, I read it. Well, maybe you've forgotten, but there's so much more. So this week, this message matches chapter 3 and chapter 6. Read more. Read more. Read more. Think more. Go to my website, bradbigney.com, and download the study guide. There's a fantastic study guide where you can wrestle and engage more and, and look up other verses and say, God, work in me. Do work in between these Sunday messages and see what God might do in you. Number two. Oh, here's what you need to understand. Idolatry is rooted in the desires of your own heart. So there's no one to blame but you and me. Oh, this is, a, this is an age-old human tendency, but it is on steroids today, right? Got to be someone to blame for where I am right now in my life. It's got to be systemic. It's got to be my family. It's got to be, got to be, got to be, got It's not my fault. Oh, that started in Genesis 3, right? When Adam literally says to God, this woman you gave, she had a name just a minute ago. (laughs) Right? You see what he's doing? He's taking a big step back. Blame, blame, blame. Don't go looking for how did this happen? Who failed me? Why did this? God's word tells us you did it. I did it. Our hearts do this constantly. John Calvin, the great reformer, said, The heart is a factory of idols. We just crank them out. We just crank them out. We just crank them out. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel chapter 14, beginning of verse 1. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 1. Now some of the elders of Israel came to me. This is the prophet Ezekiel speaking. And sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols. Where? Where have they done it? In their hearts. See, look at me. This is Old Testament even, and it's still not talking about a visible idol outside of you. This gold or silver or bronze or wood. He's saying, here's the real problem. These men have set up their idols in their... Now, look at me again. Who did it? They did it. Are we always aware that we did it? No. Because last week I told you, Jeremiah 17, 9, your heart is deceitful, wicked, sick. Who can know it? You can be unaware of your own heart. These men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Here's what I want you to realize. 
When you come to God, often we're coming, and these elders of Israel were coming. Things aren't going well. Life's not working out. Where's the good God that's supposed to bless us? We're the people of God. God is saying, should I even listen to this? Because when I see where your heart is, there's only one thing I want to talk to you about. Not these circumstances, not how life isn't working out. Your heart. What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your heart? That's what I want to talk to you about. Your heart. Should I be inquired of at all by them? Verse four, therefore speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, every one of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him that which causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols. He's like, I will answer you, but it won't be what you were looking for. You're like, well, that's not what I ask you, God. And he'll begin to point out to you the idols of your own heart. What God is saying is this is such a top priority because this affects how you're seeing your circumstances and how you're seeing other people. Let's start there. It's very similar to what Jesus was doing in Matthew 7. Remember Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 7, 3 to 5, where Jesus said, get the what out of your own eye? Log out of your own eye first. Then you will see more clearly to help your brother with the speck that's in his eye. There's a biblical principle that you'll find. It's Matthew 7 and it's Ezekiel 14. It's everywhere. When you've got trouble, start with you. See your own sin first. See your own sin is worse. See your own sin is what you need to be working on most. Then, as God gives you help on that, see what you think about your brother or sister or your circumstances because you will see it differently after you first do some hard work. He's like, oh, no, 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 don't, don't be telling me what you want me to do yet. Let me give you a first step. Your heart, the multitude of the idols in your heart. Verse five, that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart. You realize God does not want just outward obedience and conformity where you try to keep a list and, and avoid this and keep this and avoid this. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. This verse could just as easily say that I may seize the family of God, new covenant believers who've been blood bought. Sin has been paid for. You've got a robe of righteousness. Heaven is your home. You have an inheritance that can't be taken and shaken. And yet I watch you turn to other things in this world and lay hold of it for your hope and your joy and your peace and your purpose. I want to seize the heart's of my people, my children, the family of God. It's still his desire by their heart because they are all estranged from me by their idols. You see, God is good. God is love. God is amazing. God is for us. So this is not an ego thing where he's up there like, you haven't made me first. You haven't made me first. I need to hear it. Am I first? Am I first? Listen, this affects us. And he loves us and wants you to have the best life. And the best life is when you do have him first place. You will be estranged from him by your idols. And he doesn't want you to have to live that way. That word estranged, Webster's, defines it simply as this, separated, alienated, feeling unloved. Hear me, can a person be a born-again Christian 
and experience times where I just don't have the intimacy with God. I don't, I don't feel close. I don't feel loved. I feel alienated, separated. I know this is a lie. I know God's word says what's true, but I'm not feeling it. Let me help you. Not every time, all the time, but it's worth checking what's going on in my heart. Because he says, if you have laid hold of something else, even a good thing, my kids, this marriage, this boyfriend, this job, this new business, success, image, approval, whatever it is, you will, if there's something else on the altar of your heart, you will feel alienated, distant, cool. And, and a new Bible study, you know, an in-depth Bible study, colored pencils, better worship music with your earbuds is not going to fix that until your heart repents of something else. And, and always know this, you know, when you find yourself saying, I just feel like God's taking 10 steps back away from me. God never moves. You did. You did. And he would love for you to have intimacy. Feel absolutely adopted and loved. But it's not going to happen while he sees you clutching and clinging to something else. Saying, I got to have this. This is what I actually trust in. This is what I built my world around. This is what I'm hoping in. This is where my identity is. I've, I've lost my total identity in this. You'll feel alienated, unloved, separated. Here's the way I would put it to you. Well, I'm sorry. Let me finish reading the passage. Verse six, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent, turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations for anyone of the house of Israel or the strangers who dwell in Israel who separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, then comes to the prophet to inquire of him concerning me. I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. He's like, I'll answer. But you'll think I'm not answering your question because I will just keep bringing it back to your heart. What about this? What about this? What about this? Whenever the Bible repeats itself on a human level, we tend to think, oh, God needed a better editor. The Holy Spirit... It's like, you keep saying the same thing. Did you hear it? Three times he says, who did this, right? Three times he says, these men have set up their idols in their heart. Three times he tells us who did it. Three times he tells us what it will cause us to do. Did you pick up on that? That caused them to stumble into iniquity. You realize when you watch someone and sometimes you think, oh my goodness, what's wrong with you? Don't you see what this is doing to your family? Don't you see what this is doing to your life? Don't you see? No, they don't. Idolatry makes you stupid. You'll just keep stepping in it, right? You'll just keep stepping in it and stepping in it and stepping in it. It's like it causes, I would put it to you this way. Idolatry, idols in your heart will bind you and blind you. Bind you and blind you. They offer freedom They call to you and say, oh, you'll find satisfaction here. Oh, you'll be so happy here. It's a lie. You'll get ensnared and you won't see clearly. You will not see clearly. You will not see clearly. You'll just keep stepping it. That's why as hard as this subject is, no one says to me, thank you, Brad. That was really fun. Your book was fun. No. I get emails from people saying, I threw it against the wall. I've, I've had multiple throw it against the wall emails. I had one, I threw it in the yard to mow over it email. Yeah, yeah, so this, this, this is not, and even sometimes someone will rate it on Amazon. One more book to make you feel bad about yourself. Okay, thank you. 
wasn't my goal. Guess what? Painful can lead you to an amazing place you've never been. But it might not be easy to get there because it's not fun seeing things about us that we don't want to see. But oh, it's like, wow, I didn't realize what I've been guilty of. I didn't realize what I've been doing. And this is wreaking hell. I've been blind and it's bound me up. It's bound me up. I don't have the freedom. I don't have the joy. I don't have the peace. And I don't even see, watch this. Idols of the heart will skew your view on every significant relationship in the world. It'll twist how you see yourself, identity. It'll twist, twist how you see God, and it'll twist how you see other people. All three are impacted. Because when idolatry is at play, you think about it, you'll take on a false identity. You're no longer just a woman of God who has children. I am one big mother. I'm not talking about size. Just it's my whole world. There's nothing but mother. Mother, mother, mother. I get it. They seem so needy. But oh, if you let your entire identity get consumed into mother, that's all I am. You forget wife. You forget child of God. You forget everything else. Then that's what leads to all these labels the world comes up with. Emptiness syndrome. All of a sudden, I lost myself. I don't know who I am now that the kids have gone. That shouldn't happen. That sh- you can say, I'm, it's sad. I miss them. I miss the chatter. I miss the little feet. But you ought to say, yay, we can run naked now because no kids are here. They're, they're, it ought to be like, oh, but we're married. We have a marriage. Wow. We can listen to our own music. We can watch our shows. We don't have to spell words. We can just talk openly and freely. Think of all the stuff you're having to do because you have kids, but you never lost sight. Even when I hear a young mom say, almost like a badge of honor, well, we've never left the kids with anyone. That's not good. Leave the kids, not with just someone on the street, but someone you know, someone you, this whole, I can't leave the kids with anyone, right? And and it's just, I'm just a mother. Well, that's what happens. Then after about 15, 18, 19 years, you look at him and say, I don't even know him. Well, that shouldn't have happened. Is it hard? Yes, we raised five kids. It's hard, but we put date night on there and we went out and they were screaming at the top of scares, not fair, not fair, not fair. I'm like, hush. I'd pull her to my side and I'd kiss her and they're like, ugh. I'm like, she was my wife before she came, became your mother. You have a frozen pizza. We're going out to eat. <laughs> this is good. It was good for them to see. Oh my goodness, that's a priority, Right? And we have my parents come from Knoxville and keep the kids while we went somewhere. Figure out who can do it, but don't think this is a great thing that I don't trust anyone with my kids. I will have them in my sight. I will protect them. I'm just one mother. Now, you're headed for disaster. You're headed for heartache. It can happen with work. It can happen with kids. It can happen with anything. You lose your identity. Oh, it wrecks how you relate to God. So it confuses you on your identity and you end up brokenhearted. It wrecks how you relate to God because you won't feel close to God. You'll feel distant. You'll feel alienated. And it twists how you see others because now people just become a means to an end. Everyone falls into two categories now. I know what I want. You're either helping me get it or you're in my way. If you help me get it, I'll be nice to you. I'll let you into my world. We'll get along fine. But if you threaten it in any way and get in my way, I'll punish you. 
you'll, you'll sense it. Either anger, pouting, withdrawal, silence. In some way, I'll let you know, but we don't announce it to each other. We don't say these things out loud. There's just this confusion. What is going on? Yeah. You begin to use people instead of loving people. Tim Keller says, we know a good thing has become a counterfeit God when its demands on you exceed proper boundaries. An idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it. In other words, you'll do anything to get it or keep it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. That's why Psalm 106, 36 says, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. But now hear me. My heart goes out to so many of you. The longer I'm alive, I'm turning 60 this year. The longer I'm alive, the more grateful I am for my home. I didn't realize what I had. I didn't realize what I grew up in with a mom and a dad that were loving and loved me. They weren't perfect, but said, I love you, Brad. I'm proud of you. I love you. I'm proud of you. I didn't realize that's not normal. That's so not normal for so many people. So my heart goes out to you because you need to be aware. Some of you, the idolatry you're guilty of, you stepped into it as a child in a response, a protective response to something that was going on that never should have been happening that way in your life. And you decided for yourself, in light of that, I will now do this. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. If you grew up in an alcoholic home, I did not. But I've been a pastor a long time. So I've walked with people. I've sat with people. I've heard about it. If you grew up in an alcoholic home, then what you knew is instability, chaos, confusion, embarrassment. You never wanted to bring anybody home. You didn't know what you'd get. Which version of dad? Mean dad, happy dad, loving mom, angry mom. You live with instability and uncertainty. I'm so sorry, I really am. But in a response to that, you said, as I move forward in life, I will always be in control and I will be self-sufficient. I've watched it, I'm gonna be in control. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be in control. Guess what, God did not design you. Can you do that? Can you do that effectively? No, in a sense, you're trying to be God. You will stay exhausted, exhausted, overwhelmed. And it's hard on the people around you as well. You're trying to do something you were never designed to do. I will be in control. I want stability and security. I'll make it happen. If you grew up in a home of divorce, again, I don't want to shame you. I'm not judging you. So many people who have divorce in their past, they didn't choose it. They didn't want to be divorced. But here you are, oh, and our culture just yammers on and on and on how resilient kids are. They're so resilient, this doesn't affect kids. That's a lie. Don't hear me saying if divorce is in your past, your kids are toast, there's no hope for them. God's grace is rich and real. They can be trophies of grace. But are kids impacted by divorce? Yes. And I want some of you to hear it who are right on the verge of hitting the exit door thinking, whatever, whatever, the kids will be fine. I've sat with teenage boys more than once, young men who weep and tell me, I love my dad. 
desperately. I want to know him. I want him to know me. But at the same time, I don't trust him and I'm angry because for 18 months or two years or three years, he lied. We thought something was going on. My mom was so upset. She's crying. We think there's another woman. No, 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 no. And then it all came out. Yep. Whole time there's been another woman. And then he moves into an apartment with her. And now I'm supposed to every other weekend go see him. My emotions are conflicted. Is this making sense? Some of you too much, I'm sorry, because you've lived it. I had these conflicted emotions. I want to know him. I, lo- I love him, but I'm angry, and I don't trust. And so you decide, I'll never trust again. I won't give my heart to anyone. I won't open myself up. And in that moment when you decide that, you don't realize you also shut yourself off from the possibility of real love and intimacy. But love by its very nature puts you at risk. Is that going to impact that young man's marriage if he gets married? This, I don't want to trust. I, we'll, it'll, we'll keep it superficial. You're wanting intimacy and yet you're doing something that nullifies it. You won't experience it as you say, I will guard, I will guard, I will guard because I must protect myself. I will protect. I won't. The goal in essence becomes I won't get hurt again. I will not. And I'll do that by not trusting if you experienced poverty, we, have a short, we had a short season of it. You've heard my mobile home stories. But it was poverty that I chose to be in seminary. Some of you, it wasn't a choice. And it was frightening to know that we never have what we need. We never, it's scary not having enough money. So you shifted and you said, I will never be in want again. I will always have enough. I will work, I will pile it up, I will, and my kids, They will have what I didn't have, and they will have more. They will have everything. And now, without realizing it, you've made your security and everything about money and stuff, money and stuff. If you grew up in a home where you had a dad who never said, I love you, who never said, good job, I'm proud of you. I I didn't realize how rare that was. I, I have a dad who's a man's man. I mean, he's 85. He always lifted weights my whole life. He was in the basement when I was a little kid with a record player with Johnny Cash, you know. I jumped in a burning ring of fire. <laughs> My dad's lifting weights. And now he's 85 in his garage, lifting weights. He's got a punching bag. His little arm just jiggles when he hits it. I'm like, Dad, is that a good idea? Like, ah. I mean, he's, he pulls up his little cargo shorts and he practices high-kicking someone's head. Because he always wants to be ready to be attacked. I literally said to him this Christmas, are you kind of sad that no one's attacked you in a parking lot yet? <laughs> He's been ready his whole life for someone to attack him. Even like with, with my kids as they were growing up, we'd see him every Christmas. He'd say to, he'd say to all my kids, come at me, come at me. Come, come. He'd take a stance in the living room, Christmas music going, come at me. We gotta do this every year. He wants to show them how you do this and always involved a growing thrust with the knee. It's like, oh my goodness, He's got a little bench that he made, you know, an incline bench. And, and since he's an engineer, he makes everything. So it's got carpet and duct tape and the handle of a lawnmower at the top that he's hooking his feet under so he can do these sit-up. And he gets dumbbells in his hand, and then he sits up. He say, I, I don't know that I can do that. He's a man's man, but he always said to me, I love you, and I'm proud of you. I heard it all the time. Even when he was mad, even when we were had a falling out, it was usually my fault. I was a teenager being a, you know, being a teenager. And he, but he would say, I love you. I'm proud of you. But as long as you tuck your legs under this table and live in this house, you got to do what I say. There was always that also. But love and proud 
came first. Some of you never heard that. Oh, you so want and or ever heard your mom express problem. You headed into the world thinking, I will get it. I will get approval and affirmation. I'll work hard enough. But you don't realize you were never meant to try to live for this. And it's like a bucket with a hole in the bottom. It's never enough, never enough. And it's exhausting to the people around you. The people, I sit with people trying to sort this out. And a spouse will say, I, I tell them encouraging things. I do. And here's what they'll say. It's like it's never, you finish it, enough. They don't hear it. Because you were not meant to make that what you build your whole world around. I must hear, well done. I must hear, good job, attaboy. In other words, the origin of some of our idolatry took root in us early in life. So I'm telling you all this to say, don't hear me saying, this is easy. Let's just all repent of our idols this year. Oh, it's gut-wrenching. It's painful, even for Brad Bigney. Oh, when, when that counselor was helping me see what I'd never seen about me, I was terrified. I was sitting there thinking, I can never do what you're talking about. I've been doing this my whole life. I've been, I've, been, I've been type A my whole life. I've been living for the approval of people my whole life. Ha, huh, it was terrifying. This is what I know. Some of you have, even though it's frustrating you and you live with disappointment, it's what you know. And it's scary to move to a place of something, but I don't know that. What if I never get what I want? That was my fear sitting there. What if I don't get what I want? What if I'm actually miserable? That's a lie of our enemy. Please God and be miserable. Who's interested? Yeah, let's do that. Let's glorify God and be miserable. That's the lie. There was a freedom. There was a joy. There was a sense of life that I had not tasted that now I know of. But it's on the other side of dying to what you've built your world around and repenting and saying, God, I'll trust you. You are better. You'll never fail me. You're a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But this is going to be scary for some of you. Say, God, oh, God. Help me. And then step across the line. Where do we see idolatry in the Bible? In the Old Testament, it's easy to spot it because it's the word idolatry or idols like we saw in Ezekiel 14. But in the New Testament, let me give you some words to look for so you'll realize it's there more than you think. In the New Testament, it most often is the English word passions, desires, lust. It's the Greek word epithumia. Any desire that's strong enough that it motivates behavior now. This is why I do what I do. This directs my life. And whenever the Greeks put epi in front of a word, that's a prefix, it just meant ramp it up. Steroid, put it on steroids. This is not just a twinge of a desire. Well, I would like that. In fact, they would translate this word epithumia, longing, craving, Oh, now do you understand? This is not a twinge. This is, I gotta have it. I must have this. I will have this. I'll do anything to get it and watch what happens next. And you better not get in my way. So relationally, it causes all kinds of war and conflict because this is a craving. This is a longing. This is what I think I have to have. And Paul talks about this desire in Ephesians chapter two. When he's talking to the new believers in Ephesus and he says, oh, 
You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh. That's the word, epithumia. Craving, longing. Now when you're lost, when you're an unbeliever, you're not a Christian, that's all you can do. You're a slave to your desires and your passions. I'd like to tell you when you put your trust in Christ... It dies. It doesn't. It's alive, but it no longer owns you. It's not your master. You're no longer a slave to those desires, but they'll try to lead you to believe you are. It's a voice that you know. It's something you're familiar with, but you're gonna have to, by God's grace and for his glory and with his spirit and maybe sometimes inviting other people into your life to help you, say no to it. I don't have to keep doing that. Passions of the flesh Later in chapter four, he goes on to say this, but this is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him, we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt by deceitful desires. Do you hear the verb? Who has to do it? Who has to do this putting off? That was weak. You do. Just like in Ezekiel 14, who put the idols in your heart? You did. Who has to put off that former way and say, I don't have to do this anymore. I don't have to say yes to this longing and this craving. It's what I know, but I don't have to say yes. You have to do it. Put off your former manner of life. And then notice a very significant, noteworthy modifier in front of desires. Look at the end of verse 22. What word does Paul use to describe these epithumia cravings? Say it. Deceitful, deceitful. They always are. They promise more than they can deliver. They'll never satisfy you. They're deceitful, they're deceitful, they're deceitful. It will not work out. It will not work out, not just some of the time. It's a lie every time, all the time. Deceitful lust, because remember, idolatry is building your world or your personal identity around something or someone else other than God. And we're gonna dig in some more next week, but let me point you in a new direction. One of the tip-offs to begin to examine your heart and consider what's going on are emotions. Emotions are not sinful in and of themselves, but they're like lights on the dashboard of your car. They tell you something, right? In most cases, it's not wise to just cover it up. Now, I'm the exception. My car is 2010, and I got so tired of seeing all these lights that are on. It says, check engine. Last time I looked, I have one. Covered that up with black electrical tape. I got this other picture that shows a tire and a wiggly thing that means one tire is low. It's not. It's not low. Covered that up. I got another picture that shows a car sliding. I don't even know what it means. I covered that up. Usually, you don't want to do that. You want to say, why is that on? But I've been to the mechanic so many times, and the last time was $700 for this e-vapor canister thing that made the lights go away for three weeks, and they came back on. I got a cheaper solution. Black electrical tape. Goodbye dashboard lights. But in real life, right, what do we do? We mask emotions by abusing alcohol, abusing prescription drugs, amusing ourselves to death, right? Binging on Netflix. There's ways to try to mask. But these emotions are telling you something. Here would be my word to you. 
Every time you have an emotion doesn't mean you're guilty of idolatry, but it's worth examining high highs and low lows. High highs and low lows. I got angry, I mean like zero to 60. Why does that make me so mad? And we tend to say, I don't know, it just does. Well, there's usually more to it than that. Very few bizarre people. There's a handful of truly bizarre people. If you knew what was going on in the heart, you knew what you were wanting, you knew how that person just got in your way or how that circumstance threatens it, it would make perfect sense why you got that angry or that fearful or that anxious, right? Trace, let emotions be markers that you trace back to your heart and say, God, what is going on with me? Wow, where did that, I mean, have you not, I have, have you not sometimes like had an outer body experience? That's me. Look at him, go, wow. And you're like, what is wrong with him? And it's me. But I'm like, well, here we go. I already released it, so let's just do it real good. But then it's worth saying, what was going on? Why did I just go off like that? If you'll get caught, remember I said last week, God will not show you your heart in a hurry in the fast lane. But if you slow down, I'm not saying for a day, 20 minutes, half hour, and say, God, remember I gave you a verse last week, Psalm 139, 23, search who? Me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me, test me, see my anxious thoughts and know, Lord, how did that happen? Why did I get that angry? Why do I feel that fearful? Why do I feel that threatened? What is going on in my heart that I'm unaware of? Emotions, it's worth tracing them and examining and asking some questions. And remember this, one of the operative words to be alert to is devastated. Remember last, night, last week in Jeremiah 12, God speaking to us about this? Jeremiah 12, be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people, the people of God, have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water you realize that word desolate? He's like, I'm shocked, I'm astonished, and you're gonna be desolate when you turn from the living waters to broken cisterns in this world. Webster's defines desolate as devastated, crushed with grief, and feeling abandoned. So let me ask you, how often do those things characterize your life. How often do you feel devastated? Now, I, I want to make a distinction. Life's hard. We live in a very broken world. Things are happening to people that should, don't, don't hear me saying nobody in this room has been done wrong. Don't hear me saying circumstances have not been harsh, but watch this. There's a difference between devastated and disappointed. There's a difference between sorrowful and crushed with grief, and there's a difference between Lonely and feeling abandoned. When you're guilty of idolatry, very often this meant so much to you, that's why there's the extreme. If I lose it or I think it's threatened, I'm devastated. I can't go on. I can't go on. Devastated. I'm crushed with grief. I feel abandoned. And yet often we think, I just need people to step up and do me better. I need my circumstances to improve because I'm so, you can't control that. But you could say, God, why does this so often 
character. I'm so easily and quickly devastated, crushed with grief, feeling abandoned. And yet I know these biblical truths. I'm adopted. I'm loved. I'm sung over. I have a robe of righteousness. I have the hope of heaven. What is going on? It's very possible, my friend, that your heart has shifted and drifted to something or someone it wasn't supposed to. And often you never know it until it's shaken or taken. When things are going well, you don't know this. Let me just step right into it. Politics. Ooh, you guys, you know, it's always been an ongoing joke forever. Don't talk about religion. Don't talk about politics. People have said that for 100 years. What just happened? Something very different just happened, right? It's like even believers can't even talk about it without railing against each other. Let me help you. When, when something has become idolatrous, there will be inordinate anger if it's threatened. There will be debilitating fear if you think, oh, I think it might not happen. Oh, politics just shifted into that place where it used to be, oh, I'm a Christian and I, I'm a registered Republican and I, I generally vote Republican. I think they'll do the things I think match what I would want to see in this world. Or I'm a Christian and I'm a registered Democrat and I vote Democrat because I think that party will do the things I most think I should see in the world, the, the priorities. Those days are over. What has happened is we've got identity politics. Oh, no, no, no. This, this captures who I am. This is what I'm hoping in. This is where my security is. That, and so if you get in the way and you think differently and you say it and... I'm going to rail against, there's anger over the top. There's fear over the top. Whenever you see excessive emotions, you can, you can go back to the heart and say, something just happened. You are craving that, longing for that, looking to that, and maybe didn't know you'd been doing it for a while, but now that it's shaken or taken, you're like, where did all this hate come from? Where did all this fear come from? Could it be? Could it be? that you'd placed your hope somewhere it never should have been. Politics got up onto the altar of your heart. Don't hear me saying I don't vote. I do. Don't hear me say I don't write letters. I do. Don't hear, hear me saying I don't read up and stay informed. But when it's not at the center of your heart on the altar, you can do everything I just described and still be joyful and kind to people who differ and actually sleep good because you're like, Oh my goodness, that's not the main thing. God is on his throne. He's in control. I've been saved. My biggest problem solved. I'm on my way to heaven. There's a new heaven, a new earth. I don't have to rail and rage. Number three, idolatry, and that leads right into what you gotta get a hold of. Idolatry, the problem, you guys, is idolatry of any sort, whether it's politics, kids, marriage, work, image, approval. It's just a shallow substitute for Jesus that will leave you thirsty and looking for more, always. It'll leave you thirsty and looking for more. Oh, remember that passage in John 4 where Jesus sees the woman coming out of the city with a bucket. She's coming out at a very odd time of the day, by the way. You don't go out midday. It was so hot in that part of the world. You do it later in the cool of the day. She's coming out because she's an outcast. She's coming out because she doesn't fit in. She's coming out because she's ashamed. She's coming out to that well with an empty bucket. But Jesus, now this is conjecture on my part, but I think it's fair. Jesus, I think, saw there's more than an empty bucket. 
she's, got, she's been trying to fill her heart with what men can do, with the love of a man. Because he says, you've had five husbands now. And the guy you're living with is not your husband. Because listen, when you come into relationships needing more than you were supposed to need, looking to people to do for you more than they're, you end up crushing people. And he gave her good news about living water. No, notice, I appreciate, he didn't even start with, stop living with that man, that's fornication. He offered her what? Living water. When you're not as thirsty, you guys, you don't step in to other sins. When you're truly drinking somewhere satisfying, it puts things in perspective and you can say no to so many things. Listen to what he said to her that he would love to say to some of you. He loves you. And he sees you trying to drink and be satisfied in other places. He said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of him. And he would have given you living water. Jesus said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become a fountain of water springing up in him. You say, but Brad, I'm thirsty. Guess what? You've shifted and drifted from the fountain. of li- Jesus is still just as good. Jesus is still just as satisfying. If you're thirsty and you're longing and you seem dissatisfied, consider you've started drinking somewhere else and wondering why it isn't satisfying you. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 11, come to me. All who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I'll give you what? Rest. Do you realize one of the biggest burdens we carry that wears us out, weary, is our idolatry. We keep saying, oh God, you gotta help me. You gotta give me grace. Life's so hard. But we're clutching these things that we're trying to make happen and say, I have to have this. He didn't promise you rest while you still cling to things other than him. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. You realize some of you have yoked up to an idol. If you yoke yourself to your kids and say, I'm gonna live for this, it'll rub you raw. If you yoke yourself to work and success, if you yoke anything else that you yoke yourself to is a choke yoke. All the while he says, and and even that word where he says, for my yoke is easy, that's a poor English translation. The Greek word literally means a good fit. If you've ever wondered, I feel like I just haven't settled into life with something that's a good fit. Let me point you somewhere. Jesus. Not Jesus at the distance. Not Jesus in your rearview mirror. Jesus right here, yoked up with him, doing life with him, loving him, keeping him in first place, drinking deeply, staying satisfied, and watch how it changes the way you relate on a horizontal level to people and circumstances. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for your word, thank you for your spirit, and thank you for not just saving us and pointing us to eternal life outside of this world, but doing everything necessary for us to experience real freedom and life now in this world, that you offer us thirst-quenching water now, not one day, someday. You never intended us for, for us to stay hungry and thirsty. We're your children, and it breaks your heart while you say, come back to me, come back to me. Put your shovel down. Stop digging there. Oh, God, 
Show us what we are not seeing about our own hearts. Set us free. Lord, change us in a way that we would be more useful for your glory, more able to obey both commands, loving you with all our heart and actually loving other people because we don't need them so much. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.